It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Get your email alerts so you never miss a podcast. Give us five stars. You can also find us at drstuespodcast.com or at birthinginstincts.com. Just hit on the banner. Uh, it's me, Dr. Stu, the original. And I'm back from an eight-month hiatus. Actually, more like a hibernation, actually. Uh, I've been missing all of you, and especially missing my good friend, Brian Whitman. As you know, Brian has been my co-host for the podcast number one through 90. This is podcast number 91. Uh, Brian has, for now, moved on to other projects as his radio broadcasting career continues to expand. And I'd like to just say a few words about Brian before we get into today's podcast. Uh, Brian has been a good friend of mine for a really long time. He's an ultimate professional. We're really going to miss him. Uh, we really wish him well on his successes in the radio. You can hear him here in Los Angeles or on our iHeartRadio from 6 to 9 drive time on uh, AM 870 KRLA. And uh, so again, Brian, if you're listening, uh, thank you for all the work that you put in for the podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Jennifer Angel. Uh, Jennifer is a very interesting person who uh, I met uh, through email. We uh, we connected because she's interested in doing podcasts, and I wanted to just give a little information about her before I introduce her. Uh, she wrote me, sent me this bio, which is always helpful because uh, it makes it much easier. Uh, Even as a small child, Dr. Jennifer Angel has always been drawn to birth and babies. Playing with her three sisters, she would birth and breastfeed her dolls, playhouse, and mother younger kids. She grew up in an in-home daycare, always having a baby in her arms. Circumstances drew her to pursue a field in healthcare. So after she completed her undergraduate degree in chemistry, she graduated from Northwestern College of Chiropractic in Minneapolis, which happens to be my hometown, and she graduated in November of 2001. So that was a nice coincidence for us. Um, Immediately after graduation, she enrolled in a postgraduate program to specialize in prenatal and pediatric chiropractic. And in 2003, she became a certified birth doula through DONA, the Doula Association of North America. Uh, Actually, that's not what DONA stands for. (laughs) What does DONA stand for, Jen? Doulas of North America, that's right. Yeah, it's doulas of North America. Got to get it right. Yes. So it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the uh, Dodgeball, American Dodgeball Association of America is what it's like. <laughs> and she started attending births as a labor coach. Dr. Angel has owned and operated several specialized chiropractic practices. She moved to Southern California in 2006, quickly became involved in the birthing community here. She began teaching the Bradley Method, and in 2007... Um, after she began teaching it in 2000, after the first home b- water birth of her daughter, she is currently enrolled in midwifery school, which gives her some good street cred with me, and finally pursue her ultimate dream of supporting families as a primary birth attendant. She has attended over 250 births as a doula, assistant midwife, and midwifery student. Uh, just six weeks ago or so, she welcomed her second daughter in 2016 in another peaceful and beautiful home water birth. Kalista happens to be with us today. Maybe she'll have a few words for us in a little bit. Uh, She advocates for women's rights to birth choices. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And strives for the highest level of health and wellness for mothers, babies, and families. So welcome to us, uh, Jennifer Angel. Thank you, Dr. Stu. I'm super excited to be here. And who did you bring with you today? I brought my actual three-and-a-half-week-old, Kalista. Say hi. There, she's squeaking a little bit. (laughs) She's beautiful. Thank you. So, so for so you're actually out and about three and a half weeks 
postpartum. I know. I have a lot of people that are telling me to slow down, but I had such a great birth and my recovery has been really phenomenal. And if I didn't feel well, I wouldn't be out. But I do. I just, this little one, I mean, our oxytocin is still just flowing. I know. I'm I'm, I'm lactating as we speak. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. Yeah. So so we're excited. We're happy. And Uh, she's gorgeous. So we'll probably, with your permission, we'll probably post a picture of her on the the website, drstewspodcast.com. You can also, by the way, follow us on Twitter. Uh, You can connect and join the conversation with on Facebook and Twitter at Dr. Fishbein uh, or Dr. uh, Dr. Stuart Fishbein OBGYN on Facebook. And the hashtag we often use is hashtag reteach breach, which is one of my big, big things to do. So tell us a little bit about why I know that you have this history of wanting to be a mom and, and all that stuff, but were you always thinking of home birthing? Were you always thinking of water birthing? Actually, my whole paradigm shift happened when I started chiropractic school. Um, I actually was raised in a very medical model. My, um, I used to joke that the medicine cabinet in my home growing up was three stories high. We did take a pill for every ill, a lotion for every potion. Um, sometimes us kids would fake being sick because we liked the taste of, you know, grape cough syrup. So it's really interesting how I was thrust into into pursuing a field in healthcare, and I won't get into that whole story because it's long, but um, chiropractic school is really what changed my entire viewpoint on health and well-being and being able to pursue health and wellness in a more natural manner. But my obstetrics class in pediatric or in chiropractic school really changed my my vision of, of birth and what's normal. And I was, you know, in my early 20s and I, I decided for myself at that point in time, I was going to have my babies at home. And they weren't on the radar. Boyfriends weren't on the radar. Husbands weren't on the radar. And um, it was, you know, 10 years later that I had my first water birth. And Did so. you pick your husband? <laughs> did it have anything based on the on your ideas? Or, or did you have to twist his arm? Or was he on board from the beginning? You know, I actually have um, a couple of different stories with that. Um, circumstances led me to actually have my first daughter. She's eight and a half now. Um, I had to leave my husband when I was pregnant, which was really difficult. And so um, I had her without the support of a partner. I had my doula. I had my midwife. It's, you know, he was (laughs) kind of not really on board as we were looking into it, but I wasn't going to let anybody, you know, change my mind. So anyways, um, I was able to have my my daughter at home. And then, but my, my husband currently... We joke that he's a caveman and he is very much into kind of more natural things anyway. He, when I told him that I had my first daughter at home, um, he didn't seem at all surprised. And when I said I was going to have this one at home, he, he was totally on board. It's, it's very um, maybe unusual for him to, to be so uh, laid back about it. And he was so supportive and it was so beautiful. And it was amazing this time around to actually have the support of my husband and, and his arms around me and around my daughter. When and his name did, is? His name is Rod. Rod, Rod. Good, you're a good man, Rod. Oh, he's, a, he's amazing. I want to just say, did, did you meet Rod through anything, any of your connections with your your <laughs> business or your birth world, or did Rod come through some other means? We met on our bikes, actually. Okay. So um, we do triathlons, and when I, I was just on a, a group ride, and he looked back, and he was like, well, who's that girl? Like, girls don't ride up Newport Coast, you know, with the group. And so he... 
you know, he friended me on one of our What do they What do they call so. a group of bikes again? What's that called? It, oh, like a Peloton? Yeah, a Peloton, right. <laughs> I was in the Peloton. You were in and the he Peloton. Was like, I got to find out who that girl is. Was he so. behind you or in front of you? Oh, I was I was on his wheel. I was always on his oh, wheel, okay. so <laughs> he's it's a very strong rider. It's interesting, you know, he might have noticed you more if he was behind. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he's a male. I think he started riding behind me more after that. <laughs> yeah, that's just how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so tell me, tell me about triathlons. Gosh, I've been, I mean, I've been a marathon runner. So I started that in my early 20s and I got bored. And so I wanted to pursue something much more difficult and challenging. And um, it was a year after the birth of my first daughter. So it was probably, I think, 2009 when I did my first triathlon. And now I've done several sprint triathlons, um, Olympics, half Ironman triathlons. I haven't done a full Ironman yet. And um, I'm excited to get back at, get back at it, actually. Um, and that's one thing that it's interesting that you asked me about that because... After the birth of my first daughter, I said, I would birth a million babies than do another triathlon. Like I just kept thinking, like my experience with childbirth was so beautiful and so amazing. And I felt like I breathed my daughter out of my body. And like, I suffer during triathlons. And I always say that about women is that, you know, they are, they do amazing things and they climb Mount Kilimanjaro and they subject themselves to very, very strenuous and amazing and difficult and, you know, just incredible physical feats. But so many women are unwilling or, or very scared and fearful to try birth without medications or drugs. And I just want every woman, if she really wants to have that opportunity, I want to support them and, and let them have that opportunity because women do far greater and more difficult things. I'm not saying that all birth is easy, you know, but, um, but it can be done. So. Yeah, your daughter agrees with you. Yeah. Well, that's pretty inspiring for me because uh, a typical triathlon for me would be making it to McDonald's, El Pollo Loco, and Burger King on the same day. Oh, that's your trifecta, right? <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily in that order, though. So, um, Well, that that's very inspiring. And to hear you say that, I mean, clearly having a baby is a, uh, obviously you can't even compare it to being in a triathlon. I mean, a triathlon, you get a little ring around your neck or you get a little trophy or something like that. Having a baby is a much different life event. Uh, both of them incredibly uh, re require incredible dedication. And I like the fact that you said that, um, you know, that it's hard work, but, but it's totally, totally worth it. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so after you've had the baby now, what are, you, what, are your, uh, what are your plans to do? What would you like to see happen in your world? Um, professionally speaking, yeah. um, well, I am in midwifery school. Right. I probably have a couple of years left. Of course, I had to take a little step back when I found out that I was expecting again. Um, but I'm really excited for that. I will always keep my chiropractic license as well. It's, un it's amazing the services that I can provide, even as a birth doula with providing chiropractic adjustments to women in labor. It's amazing how the physical alignment of mother and baby can either make or break a birth sometimes. Um, and then also even I can, I can treat babies right after birth, even um, I've had, you know, I'm on call with several midwives in the in the community that if they're the baby's having a slow transition, they'll sometimes call me and I will do a home visit and, and do like very gentle body work, um, craniosacral techniques, you know, sometimes I think this one baby, I literally was just holding the frontal bone. And the baby was calm and relaxed and breathing fine. And when I would release it, the baby would go into a more of a distressed breathing pattern. And it's amazing how they unfold shortly after birth, and I was able to to prevent transfer of that baby, and it's that's so amazing and empowering. And, yeah, I mean, and you've got some, you've got some really handy skills. It's so and, rewarding. Yeah, you've got really handy skills. The fact that you can do yeah. chiropractic, chiropractic so, dueling, dueling, yeah. assisting, and and um, 
eventually you have your midwife degree as well. Well, eventually. It's been a dream of mine for so long. And right. It never is the right time to have a baby or even go to midwifery school, but <laughs> I'm doing it all. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. That's an interesting thought. It's never the right time. Or, you know, t- quite frankly, I don't yeah. think it's ever the wrong time. Right. That's why I just yeah. had to do it. Yeah. yeah. I just had to do I it. I think... Uh, well, you know, I look at I look at where we are right now in the in the healthcare field, and you know, clearly, you know what I do, and you know that I'm a lightning rod for stories. We had some we we shared some birth stories when we had lunch that time, and mm-hmm. and you know, I'm a lightning rod for people that are are having their needs not met, and they come and you know, you really want to bring out the Kleenex box every time, and you and the things that I hear. And the things that go on in the uh, medicalized birth world that are considered the standard of care and that's considered the norm. I mean, talk about an upside down world. I mean, we have an upside down political world right now. And we have an upside down, uh, you know, um, immigration status and what's going on in Europe and all the things. The world is a little bit of a crazy place right now. Yet close to home, which affects every family because who has, who has a baby, is a system in place in the United States that is um, really backwards. Uh, it, it's narrow-minded. It's, it doesn't uh, reflect individual choice. It violates medical ethics on a daily basis. Um, when, you, when you see what you see from the point of, be, of view of being a, a, a chiropractor, um, do you hear these same stories from people? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Or even being a birth doula and, you know, you said it's like women with their first birth and feeling so cheated or abused or, or forced into making decisions that were not in alignment with their, you know, vision of, of birth. And, and we understand, you know, we all appreciate and accept medical intervention and, and when it's necessary. But just like you were saying, it's so backward in this country. I always, you know, will use the analogy of, of Europe or whatever and, you know, saying for low risk women, this is, it's just too much, you know? And, and when I, when some women do talk to me and they're contemplating doing out of hospital birth, I will say, well, that's the model, you know? And, and they're afraid of transfer. And I said, but if something does deviate from normal, that's what should happen. That's what is it, which it should be set up for more collaborative care in this, in this area, of course, as you know, you know, for, for women that if they do need to go in for them to feel supported and still, you know, um, respected, so. Well, I, I think with social media and, and uh, podcasts and some of the great documentaries out there, people are getting the, the message. And I think it causes the organized medical world to sort of circle their wagons and even and double down sometimes on, on some of the silly things that they do. I mean, we, we've talked about this on other podcasts before, but I'm going to just, it's, we've had a nice eight month <laughs> break. So I'm sort of going to go through a lot of the things that I probably say a lot. One of them, which is, is the the silly things that go on in a labor and delivery suite in a normal birth where a woman is brought in and she's not allowed to eat and she's often immobilized and she's often interrupted and uh, she's got people staring at her sitting in chairs. They're constantly taking vital signs or asking her silly questions about things that don't really matter uh, when she comes in for admission, like how many stairs do you have in your house or what did your grandmother die from? And the same questionnaire that you'd ask somebody who's coming in with a ruptured appendix. Of course, I don't know what your grandmother dying from with a ruptured <laughs> appendix has to do with anything either. Yeah. But you know, they have certain forms that they have to fill out before they can go on to the next page or the next step or to get you your wristband so that they can draw your blood, so they can start your IV, so they can do all the things and, and, and never make eye contact and all these things that are going on. 
And then when it gets to the birth, although hospitals are beginning to change, uh, women need to understand that, that birth is a normal function of their body and doesn't necessarily require restriction in movement or vaginal prepping with iodine or, or sterile drapes or their doctor or nurse wearing a hazmat suit, um, babies being separated from their mothers with sort of rather relatively early cord clamping. And instead of the mother baby going on the chest, the baby goes off to the warmer. And then, you know, that the whole thing that settles in where the dissatisfaction, which is never something that is considered by the hospital administration, the individual woman as an, as a, no, the, the woman as an individual. And I couldn't think of nothing more, a better example of that than something that's been going all over um, social media the past couple of weeks. And that's this thing from ACOG where these two guys, uh, Dr. Norwich and Dr. Uh, Lockwood, uh, were having a faux debate about whether or not to induce everybody at 39 weeks. And they looked at scientific numbers and they looked at relative risks, not really actual risk, but relative risks. And they both concluded that all women should be induced at 39 weeks. And, and they were dead serious on it. And what's frightening about that is that at the beginning, 20% of the audience thought it was a good idea, which is also frightening. By the end of the talk, 70% of the audience thought it was a good idea. And not once, because I, I, I sat through the whole discussion. I watched it on, on video on my ACOG channel. Um, I do have an ACOG channel because I am a fellow of the American College of OBGYN. And I watched the whole talk, and not once in the whole talk did they consider the woman as an individual, and that they, did they consider that she may not want what they're having to offer, nor did they think that labor or pregnancy was, a, um, was that natural labor was a good thing. In fact, one of the guys even said, I think it was Dr. Norwich, even said that labor is, an, I mean, that nature is a lousy obstetrician. And when you hear this, and these are the mainstream guys, they're chairmen of their departments, so obviously they're teaching next generation of doctors and residents what's happening. You know, we, we're living in a world that is completely, if it was a Superman comic, it would be the bizarro world. It's completely upside down. And when 85% of women are normal and do not require intervention, they're healthy, healthy moms, that, but that they all are being taken care of by people who are trained and taught in this manner, it you know, we need more and more people like you who are coming through and, you know, with the idea from, you know, childhood, I'm not sure, did your, did your family have home birthing? Did, uh, you know, how did that, how did, you know, how, <laughs> how do we change the next generation more so than just sitting here, you and I perseverating on the couch? Yeah, you know, it's, you brought up so many amazing things in just your little <laughs> tirade, tirade right there. Um, and you ask about my family. Um, my mother actually died from a heart attack when I was four years old. She had five children. She died when she was 34 years old. And, and that's devastating in and of itself. Um, and that's what thrust me into healthcare because I thought I was a ticking time bomb and that I'd have heart disease and that I would die young and all that sort of thing. But one thing that she left behind her legacy was that she birthed five children naturally. She breastfed her children. We have pictures of her breastfeeding her children. It was very normal. And her maternal wisdom, I know, flows through me. I mean, my dad remarried to my stepmother, who was, was not like that. You know, she actually had two cesarean births. She actually breastfed for a very short time and then did formula feeding. So, you know, that whole argument about nature versus nurture, you know, I, I believe that nature um, was stronger of an influence on me. But um, as I was driving up today from Orange County, because that's where I'm at, um, I was able to reflect on my family. And um, this baby that I just had, Kalista, is the 14th grandchild for my dad. 
and we have zero cesarean births through all of that. I have three sisters. I have three sisters-in-law. All of us have given birth vaginally. I wonder, and what, that, the, I wonder what the Vegas odds would be for that. <laughs> I know. I know. Like nobody, nobody's going to put bets on 100%, right? I mean, if, if we were birthing like the normal statistics in America, a third of my family would have had cesarean births. What would that be? Three or four babies would have been born with cesarean section. But then you're saying that there are people like me that are changing, you know, people's ideas. And, and I am soft-spoken with my family. You have to be. I'm not going to put my viewpoint strongly on them. They come to me when they no, want to. No, you can't. It's like politics. You can't. Exactly. It's not something to talk about at the dinner table. Exactly. That's right. But with the babies, my nieces and nephews that have been born, um, some have been born in hospitals but the majority have been born with midwives and have been born out of hospital. And I, it's so rewarding for a brother or a sister to say, we're going to have our babies at home. And they tell me this, but they didn't come to me and ask for statistics or ask. I mean, like they've been following me for the past, you know, uh, almost 20 years of my career, you know. Um, so that's really great. And then the other thing that I want to touch on what you were talking about is that you talked about the reality of what hospital birth looks like. And even though there's documentaries out there, <sighs> Women don't want to believe it. They still want to believe that they can have their vision and their, their empowering birth experience in a hospital. And as a doula, they, they um, interview me. And there was one couple that, that very much stands out in my mind. They were like, we watched the business of being born. And, and basically, they were wanting me to tell them that it wasn't true, that, that the, the statistics in that movie weren't true, that the way that women were to be felt and you know supported in hospitals as poorly as they are, they wanted me to say it wasn't true. And I had to look at them almost with tears in my eyes and say, that's true. It's all true. You want to have this amazing birth experience in a hospital. You're going to have to fight for it. And I sometimes, you know, tongue in cheek will say, you can go to McDonald's and ask for a steak. And if somebody really, really loves you there, they may go out the back door and go to the local, you know, steakhouse and bring you back a steak. But never happened to me. And I go there a lot. <laughs> I know. So. <laughs> I know. So like you want this, this, this experience in the hospital and, and bringing in a doula can help, but we're not going to overstep our bounds. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a very peaceful person in the hospital. And if, you know, things are suggested, you know, I will talk with the family and, and help us tactfully navigate through that system. But that's why I love out of hospital birth. You know, well, you can't, you can't bring an out of hospital birth experience into the hospital. And anybody who right. says that has no understanding of, of how mammals give birth. And, and I hear this all the time from the, uh, ethos, the so self-proclaimed ethicists who, who say that home birth is dangerous, but we understand that hospital birth needs some improvement. We need to make hospital birth more homelike. And whenever they say that, they, they, they're just in a d complete denial or there's a cognitive dissonance about the fact that, that hospitals aren't, will never be homelike because they're not run by a mother and a father. They're run by people whose concerns are completely different from what the mother and father want. There's financial concerns, there's litigation concerns, there's uh, expediency concerns, there's um, um, employee concerns, there's you know, all the things that go on in a hospital. There is absolutely no way that they can uh, leave a woman alone in a hospital because they have to monitor you because they have to have a doc documented uh, vital signs and, and baby's heart rate tracing. They they are they always treat to the worst case scenario i mean it's it's why babies are immediately taken from mothers and put over in the warmers in many hospitals that's changing it's not changing fast enough but it's changing and why newborn babies born to parents who've been screened for hepatitis still get hepatitis vaccine or or why every baby 
whose mother's been screened for chlamydia and gonorrhea still gets goop put in their eyes. Um, why babies need a bath? Why do babies need a bath? Well, babies need a bath because they, well, we've always done it that way. And how, how can you not give the baby a bath? You know, we recommend mothers at home births. They don't, don't bathe your baby with anything but water for, for a week or two. There's absolutely no reason to, to give a baby a bath. There's no reason to prep a mother's vagina with iodine. Birth is not a sterile procedure. It's not like having your gallbladder removed. Uh, <laughs> speak of, speak of, the, of, of the devil. It's not like those sorts of things. Um, when it needs to be intervened upon, yes, that's fine. But that should be 10 to 15% of the time. So, you know, and in the midwifery model where we actually have cherry-picked our clients, um, you know, the C-section rate runs around 7%, 7 8%. And, uh, but, you know, they, you can't compare that to hospital birthing where they take care of all comers. But 15% would be reasonable. Well, well, we know that the rate is double that. And we know if there's 1.3 million cesarean sections being done every year in the United States, that then probably 600,000 of them or, or so are probably not indicated. If we were doing 600,000 unnecessary surgeries of any other kind, there would be an outcry so loud that you would, you know, that would go all the way to the halls of Congress, which of course they would probably do nothing anyway, <laughs> because they are excellent experts at doing nothing. But nonetheless, it's, uh, there would be an outcry. But there is no outcry here, except from a very small voices. And there are people in the human rights and childbirth movement, which is starting to get some make some noise, which is very, very good, uh, to uh, bring awareness to this fact. I mean, people think that they can uh, do a cesarean section, that they're going to be safer, and they can bully a patient, and they're going to be safer medical legally, and they're going to find pretty soon that, you know what, there's no medical legal sanctuary anymore from anything, and what ultimately needs to be done is the tort system and needs to be changed dramatically from that. Um, and one of the things when we, to just change the subject briefly, one of the things that I asked you about when we talked this morning, as I said, or last night, I guess it was, I said, so think of some topics that you wanted to um, talk about today. And you said basically that you couldn't think of anything. So, and, and, and so I thought about it. So I, so I said, okay, well then let's talk today a little bit more about nothing. Because <laughs> I think nothing is extremely important. That's true. And I, and I make a point of saying that one of the forgotten skills that I never learned as a resident and is never being taught in residency programs is the beautiful skill of doing absolutely nothing. It's very, very hard to do that. Uh, we are not, in the medical model, trained to take our hands and sit on them. We are trained to avoid the pregnant woman at all costs, and when she's in labor, if we're called to the labor room by the nurse, we are then trained we must do something whether it's examine the mother or start Pitocin or rupture the membranes or start pushing before she feels like pushing or all these things because we've been called to the room. And the idea that we would absolutely do nothing uh, or that we could patiently do, you know, sit there or leave the room and just say, you're doing great. You know, Mabel, you're doing great. Uh, I'm going to go in the lounge and, you know, you're fine or whatever would be is a beautiful thing. So I want to talk to you a little bit about from the midwifery model of care that you're learning and from chiropractic stuff like that, are you ever taught to do nothing? I think intuitively I, I know that um, through all my training. I don't know. Um, when I teach the Bradley method, I joke to my couples. Okay, honey. Um, That's Kalista. That Kalista that yeah. is uh, having a, uh, having a, a moment not, here. She's not liking the podcast so much. I'm multitasking. I'm a nursing mama too. These guys are being very, 
very good to let me do this. Well, if you want to take a moment, I, 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 I got a lot more I can just talk about here. Yeah, it's Because okay. the idea, the idea she's that... She's good. Oh, she's good? Yeah. Okay, go. Um, well, I just want to say this one thing, because I joke in my Bradley class that we could throw a mother, a pregnant, laboring, well, a laboring mother in a closet, shut the door. Well, both of them are going to come out, most likely. And and I say, well, we're more humane than that, and we're going to support mothers and all of that. But But it's true. If we left them alone birth just happens it just works and um i cite dr bradley's statistics he was an obstetrician that designed this this birthing method and he attended over twenty three thousand births in his 46 year career with a 96 percent unmedicated vaginal birth rate and it's like what does that say about birth it it actually validates birth but it also really validates that who you choose to attend your birth makes a big difference right i was going to say that that the idea of doing nothing doesn't really occur to my ACOG uh, colleagues, when I read their, when I read the um, daily briefings I get from ACOG, or the news updates I get from ACOG, or the uh, watching the the videos of what went on over at the ACOG meeting in Washington last, a couple weeks ago, or the uh, the two guys presenting the 39 week uh, so called debate, the idea of of doing nothing is foreign to them. They, it, I, I I liken it sort of to my Apple phone, all right? My Apple phone works great, all right? But every year, they got to fix it. And every couple weeks, I got an iOS update that does something to my phone that I really didn't need to have done to my phone in the first place. Why can't they just leave my phone alone, all right? So maybe I'm old-fashioned in that way, but that's sort of an analogy to me, whereas birth has worked really well for, for a very long time, you know, we did, uh, obviously, we've decreased maternal mortality, we've decreased neonatal mortality to a point probably where it peaked in probably the 1970s. And since that time, with the rising cesarean section rate from 5% now to 32%, uh, we have a rising maternal mortality in this country. We have a rising neonatal mortality in this country. We have major disparity between uh, socioeconomic groups and classes. We're not doing better. And sort of like some of my far left-leaning friends, every time a program is put into place and it's not doing better, all right, rather than finally admitting that, you know, maybe we made a mistake by doing this, maybe maybe public education and Common Core and all that stuff isn't the best way to go. No, no, they, they double down on it. And they say, oh, if we'd only spent more money on it, if we'd only done more meddling on it, then maybe, just maybe, um, we would have had better re- results. And, and it, that's never, that never happens. It never happens. And in, at some point, the medical model has to do some self-reflection and look at the fact that, that what they're doing is only making things worse, not better. I agree. <laughs> so, so doing nothing. Is doing a, nothing. Is, you know, if I were going to give a lecture, uh, one of my next lectures will be the forgotten uh, skill of doing nothing. You know, I talk about breech deliveries and twin deliveries and how we're not teaching those anymore, not teaching forcep deliveries anymore. There's, you know, ACOG in its schizophrenic fashion puts out a statement saying the C-section rate's too high, but then they don't give any suggestions about how to lower the C-section rate, all right? No inductions before 39 weeks, but then they come out a year later and say, let's induce everyone at 39 weeks. So that's backwards. They say the C-section rate's too high. We could lower the C-section rate by 3 to 4% by teaching, reteaching breech delivery or reteaching twin delivery. But they're not teaching that anymore. They're not teaching forcep delivery anymore. They're going right to cesarean section. These sorts of things 
are crazy. And if you really wanted to lower the cesarean section rate in the United States, you could do it tomorrow, all right? And I, I've said this many, many times on many different podcasts and my writings. All that would have to happen is for insurance companies and the government, Medicaid, Medicare, whatever it is, to decide, okay, we are going to pay twice as much as we're paying now for a vaginal birth, which would still save the government money or the insurance company money, and half as much for a cesarean birth. But for some reason, because of the old relative value scales that val always valued surgery more over, over um, office-based interviewing or, or direct patient contact, procedures were always valued more over intelligence or, or thought that so C-sections are valued at a much higher rate. So there's no financial incentive for cesarean sections, um, for hospitals to cut back their, their cesarean section rate. As a matter of fact, it would be uh, a violation of the fiduciary duty of the chief financial officer of a hospital to advocate for a lower cesarean section rate. So their ethical obligation is in direct conflict with the ethical obligation of, of those of us that practice toward, toward the women that we're supposed to be caring for. That, to me, is a huge dilemma. But really, tomorrow, tomorrow, we could lower the C-section rate by just changing the way we reimburse for it. And suddenly, you'd find that VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean, breech delivery, uh, forcep delivery, might be a good idea. And those doctors that know how to do it would suddenly maybe start doing it again. And those doctors that didn't would probably, the residents and in, in, in medical students would start to clamor uh, to their faculty to say, listen, we're in a training program now. Train us to do these skills. And whether you want us to do them or not when we get out, we need to know how to do them because that's what makes us an obstetrician. What makes us an obstetrician is the ability to do things that are all up, that are obstetrical. If all we do are vaginal births and cesarean sections, we could just hire midwives and general surgeons to do that. We don't really need obstetricians anymore. What makes an obstetrician unique is the skill of doing a breech delivery, pulling out a second twin delivery, putting forceps on, putting their hands on, that sort of thing. They're not teaching that anymore. So ultimately, the irony of the whole thing, Jennifer, is that we're going to find that the residency programs which are not teaching these things are creating their own demise because there will be less of a demand for obstetricians and more of a demand for midwives because midwives, by the way, in a government program or a HMO type program, cost less than half as much. And they can do the same work. And they just have one guy sitting around maybe doing the cesarean sections that are necessary. But they don't need, obst what do they need an obstetrician for? They can have a maternal fetal medicine specialist on staff. They can have a reproductive endocrinologist to do the fertility stuff on staff. They could have a GYN oncologist to do the abnormal pap smears on staff. They don't need a, a generalist OBGYN. It's a total waste of space. So how long until that occurs? I mean, it's so not set up that way, you know? I mean, when will they realize that financially... And for statistics, you know, better birth outcomes, that that model is... Well, we got to get... See, we got to get the CEOs of Blue Shield and Blue <laughs> Cross to listen to Dr. Stu's podcast. Right. <laughs> All right. So if they listen to Dr. Stu's podcast, episode number 91, then uh, they might very well get a chance to, uh, to change things for the better. Because even though that's not the direct ethical way we want to deal with uh, problems, that's not really honest. You know what? If it, gets the, if it gets the right result, sometimes it's okay to get the right result for the wrong reason. So anyway, this has been uh, a pleasure, Jennifer, to meet you and Kalista. And Thank I think uh, we'll be uh, 
probably meeting Kalisa in podcast number 92. We would love to come back. Because <laughs> as you know, we do two podcasts at a time, so we'll be doing podcast 92 in a few minutes. But anyway, I wanted to um, thank you for all for listening to Dr. Stu's podcast. You can hear us again on iTunes. You can find us at drstuspodcast.com or on Twitter at at Dr. Stu. Uh, and, and, uh, oh, excuse me, at Dr. Fishbein, not at Dr. Stu. And you can always email me with questions. I read all my own emails. That would be at, at askdrstu at gmail.com. Askdrstu at gmail.com. Once again, this is uh, Stuart Fishbein for Jennifer Angel. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>